Acts chapter 1. So if you've got one of those black Bibles near you on a chair, uh, it's about two-thirds of the way through the Bible, turning to the book of Acts chapter 1. Again, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here at Mosaic. So today we're kicking off a new series, I think we've got it uh, up on the screen here, called Vintage Church. And we're going to be spending the next seven or eight months uh, exploring the idea of what a vintage church is. Uh, and we're going to be doing that by exploring the book of Acts. And I'll explain a little bit um, where we're going with that after we read the first text that we're going to look at here in the book of Acts. Today we're going to cover... Uh, the first 11 verses. Next week, Z will be preaching, and he'll uh, finish out the chapter. Um, but today, I've got the first 11 verses. So let's, uh, let's read it. I'll read it. You can follow along. Luke said, I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise, which he said, you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit in a few days. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take this text and bring it to bear upon our hearts as we consider what it means to be a vintage church. And that you would change us as individuals, that you would change us as a group. In your name we pray. Amen. So right now in Brooklyn, vintage stuff is trendy. Stuff that was once old and out of style is coming back. Whether on the runways or in the media. We're producing remakes of movies that were first made when I was a kid. Talk about making me feel old. Um, whether it's the vintage clothing store across the street on this block, oh, thanks, man. Whether it's uh, the vintage clothing store which is on this block across the street, you might have shopped in there, or whether it's the Brooklyn flea market that sells vintage items, it seems that everything that's old is new again. We keep returning to that which is old. I think we do this because there's a certain level of familiarity and comfort with older stuff. It's what we know. It's what we're familiar with. When you go for the older stuff, when you go for something vintage, you feel like at least you know what you're getting. Yet sometimes those of us in ministry can fall into the trap of trying to make church cutting edge and relevant. And we miss the fact that what many people are looking for is not something new, but something very old. Which is fortunate because that's actually what church is all about. It's about an old way. It's about an ancient past. That's why we gather to sing about an old, old story. That's why we rehearse ancient truths in church. That's why we memorialize the death of Christ 
through this very old ritual that we call communion. So what we're going to do over these next several months as we unpack the book of Acts together is explore what does it mean to be a throwback church? What does it mean to recover our roots as the New Testament people of God? What does it mean to go retro, to go all the way back? Because the way forward is actually the way back. So to do that, we're going to look at the very first set of churches that are recorded for us in the book of Acts. We're going to look at these vintage churches and see how can we be a church that is characterized by the same set of things that characterize them. If these churches of the New Testament in the book of Acts are the model, how can we here at Mosaic be a vintage church? So a few things about the book of Acts before we get started on these particular verses. Uh, the book of Acts is actually volume two of a larger, of a larger book. Volume one is called the Gospel of Luke. And Luke wrote these two books, and he wrote them together on purpose. And you can see that for a lot of different reasons. But volume one is about the story of Jesus. Volume two is about the story of Jesus' disciples. It's about the story of Jesus' followers. The ongoing story of Jesus as it continues in the life of the church. And the idea is that in volume two, in the book of Acts, the disciples are imitating Jesus. In volume two, the disciples are imitating Jesus, and you and I are called to imitate them. So as we, as we look at the book of Acts, we want to think of it through the lens of discipleship. We want to think of it through the lens of we are called to imitate these practices, these lifestyles, these patterns laid down for us by the vintage churches of the book of Acts. I mentioned that it's written by Luke. Luke was a doctor. He's not a professional Christian. He's not a theologian. He's a doctor. He was most likely from the Syrian city of Antioch. So what you've got is a Syrian doctor who traveled all over the world with the Apostle Paul, and he records some of these stories, stories that are meant to shape every church that reads these stories so that together we become a vintage church. I want to just suggest in this passage three ways in which you and I are called to be part of a vintage church. Now, I realize that you may be here and you may not be comfortable calling yourself a Christian. You may say, Stephen, I'm on a spiritual journey. I don't think I'm born again. I don't think I'm comfortable with all this Jesus talk. And I, I understand that. Maybe you're here and you're just here for the free food. I can respect that. Um, but what I would say is I would just encourage you to kind of just hang with me for the next 15, 20 minutes. And pray a prayer that just is like this. God, if you're real, would you show me? Jesus, if you really are the one that Stephen is talking about, would you show me? For those of you who are already convinced, for those of you who want to follow Jesus, I think there's three basic ideas that kind of run through this passage. Three ways to be a vintage church. First off, I think a vintage church is one that embraces the Trinity. Now, I've been talking about the Trinity a little bit lately here at Mosaic, but the, the doctrine of the Trinity is not at all simple, but it is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Um, one of the major things that separates Christianity from all other spiritualities and all other religions in the world 
is the idea of the Trinity, that there is one God who is comprised of three persons that all share the same essence. Now, I don't fully know what that means. That's what the Bible says. That's what has been passed down to us from church history. But we see each of the three persons of the Trinity, what's called the Godhead, we see them all at work in these verses. First off is the Father. Acts 1, verse 4 says, While he was with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for whose promise? The Father's promise. Jesus said, wait for the Father's promise. Then verse 7, he's answering a question from the disciples about when Jesus is going to return. And Jesus says, you know, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. Jesus twice references the authority of God the Father. So that's the first member of the Trinity that we see on display in this passage. The second one, of course, is God the Son, Jesus. And he's the one doing the talking uh, in this passage. He's the one interacting with the disciples. And in Christian teaching, and, and I understand if you're not there yet, you don't believe this yet, but just telling you what Christian teaching is, what the Bible declares, is that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born of a virgin, conceived miraculously, and God exists in the person of Jesus Christ. 100% God and 100% man. And Jesus stands here interacting with these disciples as a flesh and blood man. Because God is not simply a spirit. Because of what Christians call the incarnation, God has become a man. That means he identifies with you in your suffering. Because Jesus isn't just perfect God. He's perfect man. The perfect man. The embodiment of everything that it means to be human. And he converses with the disciples in this passage. And then he also talks about the third member of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Verse 5, Jesus says, John baptized with water. He's talking about John the Baptist. He said, but one day soon you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 8, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So what's going on here is that Jesus, God the Son, is talking to the disciples about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the entire triune God. Now, this is a mystery that I don't understand. I believe it because it is revealed to us here and because it's not logically contradictory. If you have questions about that, we can sit down and talk about that sometime. But I believe it because it is here. I accept it by faith. But there is this mystery of the Trinity. There is this mystery of the Godhead that God the Father has condescended to send God the Son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a, of a virgin. And that then together they are sending the Holy Spirit to empower the first church. And that is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying pretty soon, not too long from now, in just a few days, the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, is going to come and empower you. And that's when he starts talking about the second thing that I think a vintage church is characterized by. A vintage church is one that bears witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, the disciples are asking, hey, Jesus, is now the time when you're going to set up your kingdom? Is now the time when you're going to, like, you know, kick Rome in the butt and get rid of them and, like, set up, set up a better government? A better rule. We're tired of the oppression of Rome. We're tired of Caesar. We're tired of the empire. We look around and we see lots of junk going on in the world. We want 
this freedom and this justice and this hope? Are you setting up the kingdom now? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know times or periods, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Now, I'll go back in a minute to the idea of God's kingdom and that hope and that, that freedom that we're looking for. But for right now, I think it's enough to acknowledge that a vintage church is one that bears witness to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit's going to come and give you power to be my witnesses. Now, if you go to court because um, you happen to witness something, the police call you in, the judge calls you in, you're not the defendant, you're not the accused, you're just an eyewitness. You saw something. And you take the stand. What is it that you're expected to say on the stand? What you saw, right? You're not expected to be an expert on anything else other than what you saw. Jesus said the Holy Spirit is going to come to make sure that the church is able to bear witness to whom? To Jesus. He said you will be my witnesses. So the disciples... This group of 120 men and women who are gathered in the upper room at the beginning of the book of Acts, they have seen Jesus. And most importantly, they have seen him alive after he was dead. And that's a game changer. I probably would have given up on Jesus on the night of the crucifixion. You probably would have too. But if you saw Jesus go into that tomb as a dead, decaying corpse... And you saw him come out three days later, don't you think that might change your mind? These 120 people in the upper room, these men and women were gripped by this idea. And so suddenly they go forth under the power of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks. And they go forth under the power of the Holy Spirit to be witnesses to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And throughout the book of Acts, this is what they do. They do it by... How they live, and they do it with their words. Now, a lot of their words are recorded in the book of Acts. We see sermons and, and speeches and all different kinds of things from people like Peter and Paul and lots of different folks. But just as importantly, we see that they bear witness to the Lordship of Christ in the way that they live their lives. Because I get that not everybody's called to be a preacher like Paul. Not everybody's called to, to do ministry like Philip. But there were people like Lydia and Phoebe, people like Timothy, just regular everyday people whose stories are recorded in the book of Acts and they bear witness to the lordship of Christ by the way that they live their lives. We proclaim who Jesus is with our words and we proclaim who Jesus is through our lives. So there was a Syrian pastor named Chrysostom. He lived about 1600 years ago. And he said that the apostles first taught by their conduct and then by their words. He said, in fact, they had no need of words because their deeds spoke so loud. Chrysostom, in reading the book of Acts, understood that they are bearing witness. This vintage church is bearing witness to the lordship of Christ, not just through what it says, but through how it lives and how the people live together. We do this here, we do this there, and we do it everywhere. 
Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is like a, a geographic outline of the book of Acts. Because they start in Jerusalem, but by the end, they pretty much reach the, the edge of the known world at that time. They reach the edge of the Roman Empire. Everything about the book of Acts is to get to Rome, which would have been considered the heart of the Roman Empire. Because if you can get to Rome, the saying is, all roads lead to Rome, also all roads lead out of Rome. So the whole point is we got to get the gospel to Rome, because if we can get it to Rome, it'll touch the far corners of the map. That's what the book of Acts is about. It's about bearing witness to the lordship of Jesus Christ as these vintage churches do this with their words and they do this with their deeds. A vintage church third is one that ministers in the time between the times. The time between the times. If you go back to verse 3, it says that Jesus is talking to them about the, the kingdom of God. And so they're really, they're really excited about this. They think Rome is about to be overthrown. They think God is about to set up his kingdom. They think Jesus is here to reign and to rule. And they're, they're so stoked. This is what they've been waiting for for millennia. And so then in verse 6, they say, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he says... It's not for you to know the times or the periods that the Father has set by his own authority. He doesn't deny that his kingdom is coming. He doesn't deny that Caesar's days are numbered. He just said, it's not for you to know the when. So theologians call this the time between the times. The church has always existed in this time between the times. So this morning, I was watching the movie Robin Hood with uh, Xavier and Malia. And Winnie the Pooh says, what did I say? Robin Hood. Not Robin Hood. Christopher Robin. Yeah, they're not old enough for Robin Hood. Uh, we're watching Christopher Robin, and Winnie the Pooh says, today is the very best day. Because he'd ask Christopher Robin, he's like, what day is it? say today. And Winnie the Pooh goes, oh, that's the very best day. Today is my favorite day, Winnie the Pooh says. The church has never known a, a day other than today. Because we've always lived in the time between the times. We've always lived when there was this time before us when Jesus came, lived and died, rose from the dead. And then there's this time that we await where Jesus returns to set up his kingdom, the one that the disciples are asking about. But we've never known that time. And we've never known the time that's coming. All we've ever had is today. The church is characterized by this in-betweenness. The church is characterized by living in this state of waiting, but on the basis of something that happened before. We live in the time between the times. And so because of that, we expect that there may be suffering. Life may not always go the way that we expect or the way that we want. Many of the disciples who are being told here that they are going to be witnesses on behalf of the Son, they're going to give their lives by the end of the book of Acts. Not all of them. Some of them. Things don't always work out like we think when we're living in the times between the times. The work of God is difficult. The gospel advances 
Sometimes it seems like then it goes backwards. But in the long term, the gospel is always going forward. People talk about being on the wrong side of history. You know, the church started on the wrong side of history. We started on the wrong side of history when the Roman Empire crucified our founder, nailed him to a tree, and he died a criminal's death. We have always been on the wrong side of history. We have always been on the wrong side of the principalities and powers. We have always been on the wrong side of the forces of darkness. But get this, we're going to end up on the right side of history. But that's not a reason to be cocky. That's not a reason for Christians to be arrogant. I know we started on the wrong side of history, and I know we will end on the right side of history because the as Martin Luther King Jr. said, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice because God's kingdom, God's just kingdom is coming. And that's why we can be confident. But in the meantime, I don't know how today is going to work out. All I know is like Winnie the Pooh, all I've got is today. The vintage churches are ones that minister in the time between the times. So those are my three ideas from this text. If I had more time, I'd try to explain some more stuff. But I want to wrap this up by giving you a few suggestions about how we should try to apply this together. First, I'd say that we are all called to embrace Jesus as Lord. Maybe you're here, sitting here today and this whole idea of being witnesses to the Lordship of Christ seems kind of foreign to you because you're like, Stephen, I'm not sure that Jesus is the Lord. I don't know if he's really alive, like you say. I feel like maybe he's still in that tomb. And I would just encourage you to keep that open mind that we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. I believe with all my heart that Jesus is alive. If I thought he was still in that tomb, I wouldn't be standing here today. I'd go get a different job. I'd do something else with my life. But I really do believe that Jesus was alive. You know, it kind of irks me. I know people mean well when they say this, but people are like, if Jesus were alive today, this is what he'd do about this or this or that or that. I'm like, dude, Jesus is alive today. I know, I know people, I know what people mean when they say stuff like that, but Jesus isn't dead. At least not if you're a Christian. That's not what we have ever believed. Jesus was only dead for a couple of days, three days. And now he's alive. So we are called to embrace Jesus as Lord. If you're here today and you feel like you are outside the Christian faith, I would encourage you that today is the day that you could commit your life to Jesus Christ. Or maybe you feel like you're on a spiritual journey. You hear us tossing around terms like born again or conversion or following Jesus, and you're like, I don't know about it. I'm not convinced yet. I get that, and I don't want to force anybody into anything. But I'd say give us the privilege of walking with you on your journey. Because if Jesus really is Lord, as I'm saying, then he wants a relationship with you. And if he really is Lord, as I'm saying, he has the right to rule your life. Because he's the king of the universe. We're called to embrace Jesus as Lord. If you have questions about that, talk to me after the service. Hit me up. Second, for those of us who are already convinced that Jesus is Lord... I think we are, we need to recommit to bear witness to Christ's Lordship through what we say, 
and through what we do, and most importantly, how we live our lives together. I think that the best uh, postcard, the best uh, flyer for the church is not something that we print out and pass out, but it's you. It's us together. It's the rhythms of our shared life together, and the rhythms of our shared life together should, should beautifully showcase the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about beauty, the gospel and beauty, and, and when we live our lives together as a vintage church, it is beautiful, it is attractional, and it should scream the gospel. And that should be attractional to those who are outside the faith. So we bear witness to Christ's lordship with our words and deeds. And three, I'd simply say that we need to commit to be a vintage church. We're not chasing the latest fad. We're not getting all our ideas from the next greatest, latest thing. I'm not opposed to being modern or hip, although I'm not personally very modern or hip. But my point is this. I'm comfortable. I'm okay with being retro. I'm okay with saying I'm embracing a very, very old tradition, an ancient path, where I'm worshiping a Jewish man who was a carpenter, who spoke Aramaic, who lived for about 30 years on this earth, and died and rose from the dead. The poet Robert Frost said, it may come to the notice of posterity that this, our age, ran wild in the quest of new ways to be new. New ways to be new. I think that pretty much sums up New York City very well. But I think amid all of that newness, God calls us to go retro. I think that by God's grace, this church called Mosaic has been able to do that in some ways over the last five years. And I think in the next five years, years six to ten, we need to keep winding our way along that old, old path. Because God calls us to recover our roots. He calls us to be a vintage 